I invite you to turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, about 18 verses, and then we'll split up chapter 4 into two weeks. So we're in week uh, 4, I believe, of 6 for this Ruth series. We'll be in Ruth 3 this morning, right after the book of Judges, before 1 Samuel. As Chris mentioned earlier, there happened to be a proposal within our own congregation this week, and that's kind of what we're talking about this morning, is a proposal. And we know that proposals look different in different customs and cultures. Uh, There's a Christian blogger I follow by the name of Samuel Say, whose family is from Ghana. That's where he descends from. He's living in Ontario, Canada, though. Recently, he proposed to his now fiancé. Before he proposed to his bride-to-be... He asked his mother, a native of Ghana, if she wanted to be there when he proposed. According to him, he laughed about it. This was his mother's response. You want me there so I can see you, my big, strong son, kneel in front of a woman? No, I don't want to see that. You've become a Western man now. Different cultures have different customs and expectations. What is noble and and chivalrous in our culture might not be seen as such in a different one. There are all sorts of different customs that you can Google, and I encourage you to do that and find out uh, ways people practice proposal and marriage in other countries. If you do that, you might read about a Korean custom that involves beating the groom's feet with fish, or an ancient Spartan custom of shaving the bride's head and dressing her in a man's clothes before marriage, or a French custom that involves forcing the bride and groom to drink out of toilets, or there's a Scottish custom of blackening the bride and groom-to-be by pouring garbage and foul liquids on them at surprising times in the days and weeks leading up to marriage, teaching them to be ready for anything. Uh, Every culture has its own strange wedding customs, and ancient Israel is no different. We're going to see that this morning as we read through Ruth 3. This is a proposal story, but there are things about it that seem odd and foreign to us. But even though it's uh, an ancient story with foreign custom, the things that seem weird to us, there's still theological truth for us in it. There's transcendent truth in this passage about God and about how he provides for and redeems his people and how he acts towards his people that we can find within this love story. And that's really what Ruth is. It's a love story. It's a marriage story. Here we're hitting the kind of the climax of that as Ruth and Boaz meet in the middle of the night. And the argument that I'll make with you is that this is ultimately about how God loves his people. Most of you know the story of Ruth so far. So Naomi is kind of the central character of the book of Ruth. And she is a woman who has, was married and had two sons. They lived in Bethlehem in Israel, but there was a famine in Bethlehem and in Israel. So they moved to Moab where there was food. They went to a foreign nation in Moab and there uh, her two sons married Moabite women And then her husband and her two sons died, leaving her in Moab with her two daughters-in-law who were Moabite women. Then she hears there's food back in Israel. So she goes, decides to go back home to Israel, and her two daughters-in-law start to go with her, but she urges with them, she pleads with them, no, go back home to Moab, it'll be easier there for you, you'll be able to find a husband, leave and stay in Moab. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, stays in Moab. Ruth, however, decides, no, 
I'm going with you, Naomi. I will leave my home of Moab and I'll go back to you to be with your God and your people in Israel. So Ruth has a conversion moment there. So then they're back in Israel and they're at Naomi and Ruth's home and Ruth decides she's going to go out gleaning. She's going to work in the field to gather some grain so that she can provide for her mother-in-law and for herself. And she just so happens to land in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a righteous man, a worthy man, a man of stature and means. And he just so happens to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. He's part of the same tribe or family or clan. Which means he might be able to save them. And that's where we pick up in our story today and we see that it's a marriage proposal story. We'll break it up. There are three scenes, but I want to break it up into four sections. And through these sections, show you how this story applies to us and what it tells us about God. So first, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see Naomi makes a plan. That's where we start out. We're in the home of Naomi, and she makes a plan. She makes a plan for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, whereby they can find some more long-term security through Boaz. Naomi makes a plan, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. So here's Naomi's plan to secure their future. Their future. You'll remember back in chapter 1, Ruth, or Naomi pleaded with Ruth and prayed for her that she would find rest. Only in chapter 1, she pleaded with her to find rest back in Moab. Naomi wanted what was best for Ruth. and said, you'll, you'll find rest, you'll find a life, you'll find security, you'll find a husband back in Moab. And she prays that she would find rest there. Now, Naomi has a different take and a different plan. Circumstances have changed. She says, I think there's a way we could find rest, shalom, peace, well-being for you here in Israel. And it's through Boaz, who is a relative of ours. Why is that important? We've talked about this a few weeks. I'm going to talk about it again just so we're all clear. The reason this is important, that Boaz is a relative of theirs, he's a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, is it means he is a potential kinsman redeemer. A redeemer, in Hebrew the word is goel. And a goel, a redeemer, would be a family member who had the opportunity or the responsibility to provide redemption for people in trouble, for a family member in need. They would provide help for a family member in need in various contexts. So, for example, in Leviticus 25, the law states that a redeemer can buy back property or even persons. So if somebody is impoverished in Israel and they have to sell their land, their home, or even themselves into service in order to survive because they've become impoverished, a redeemer could come and buy them back and secure their land and even their own selves. And the reason why this was important because it had to do with inheritance. 
if you sold your land or sold yourself into service, you lost ownership of that land and you're no longer able to pass it on to future generations. So a redeemer was a family member who could buy that land back or buy the person back and then secure that land and they would own it again. That way they could pass it on to future generations. It was a way to make sure that family lines weren't wiped out by poverty or even service to others. This concept of redemption also worked in marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 talks about the concept of leveret marriage where a, a levir, a person could marry the widow of their deceased family member. So a man dies and he leaves behind a widow. One of his brothers or close relatives could come and marry that widow and have really the responsibility to marry that widow so that she would be taken care of and so that their future kids would have his, the deceased husband's, inheritance. So it wasn't lost, but it was passed on, and they would live on in his name. It was a way, against of securing, protecting the widow and securing future generations. So a family member would come and take care of the widow. This concept of redemption also applied in other circumstances. So Numbers 5.8 states that a redeemer, a goel, can settle and pay off debts. If somebody became indebted to somebody, then a brother or cousin could come and pay off the debt and make things right. It was a way of establishing justice and making sure that everything was taken care of, bring wholeness and justice to the family. Numbers 35.12 even uses the Hebrew word goel for somebody who's seeking vengeance for murder. So goel is translated there in the ESV, at least, as avenger, somebody who's avenging the blood of somebody who's been murdered, and there's some laws about what the person who murdered somebody else can do can flee to another city, but it talks about fleeing in case a goel, a redeemer, an avenger, comes and seeks justice on behalf of his family member. So a goel, a redeemer, is somebody who is seeking justice, wanting to make things whole for the family members, settling business, making sure the family is taken care of. That's what a redeemer does. And Naomi thinks Boaz, our family member, can be such a redeemer. He can make us whole. And if we're going to convince him to do that, then Ruth, you're going to need to get dressed. Like, that's her plan. Bathe, wash up, put on some makeup and your best cloak, and go meet Boaz. This is Naomi's plan. She gives her these instructions maybe so that Ruth would be attractive and be able to seduce Boaz. It may also be that Ruth was wearing customary mourning attire before that. It was not unusual for widows to mourn for weeks on end and not bathe or not put on makeup and not adorn themselves. So Naomi may be saying, it's time to put that behind, put on fresh clothes, put the mourning behind you, and now you're ready for marriage. Either way, the intent is... Go meet Boaz and present yourself. And Naomi is why she chooses a good time to do it. She says, harvest season is over. He's going to be winnowing. That's a great time to meet him. Why? Well, okay. So harvest season, it was over. They had threshed the grain. It's all been piled up. And now they're going to winnow it. They're going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the trash from the good stuff. And that involved going to the threshing floor, be a flat area where a breeze would blow through. And with a pitchfork, you'd throw up the grain and then the not heavy stuff, the husks, 
would be blown away by the wind, and that was the trash, and then the good stuff, the heavy kernels, would land and be left behind, and that was the way you purified and separated wheat from chaff, what was usable from what was non-usable, and the trash was blown away. What's left is a pile of usable, good grain, and that was called winnowing. And when that was done, it was a celebration, because that was the harvest. This was rejoicing. This is party time, actually. Threshing floor and that custom kind of had a little bit of a a hint of debauchery to it when he talked about the threshing floor, because that is where people celebrated and partied at what God had done. In fact, that's the context for a verse like Isaiah 9-3, which we read at Christmas. It talks about the joy that God will bring to Israel. It says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They party. That's the kind of joy God will bring. And that's the reference. This would be party time. So Boaz is going to be in a real good mood, particularly because he's lived through famine. Now he's celebrating how God had provided. So he's going to be in a good mood. It'll be evening. And what I want you to do, Ruth, is go and uncover his feet. And there are scholarly debates as to how that word feet should be translated. In other places in Scripture, it is translated legs. And it may hint that Naomi is saying, uncover something more than feet. And what we find as we read through this passage is there's this air of romantic tension, I'll call it. Uh, There's some suggestive language. So there's all sorts of debate as to what actually happened at the threshing floor. I'm going to suggest to you that Boaz is upright and acts with integrity, and we'll get there, and that this language is intentionally suggestive to show how charged the situation was and to highlight how much integrity Boaz had and how vulnerable Ruth made herself. That's all part of the picture here. And Naomi will advise Ruth, go, uncover his feet, Lie next to him and tell him, do what you want. I'll be yours if you'll take me. He'll know what to do. So, what application do we make from this? Is this good dating advice? Probably not. This is an argument for our hermeneutical principle that uh, narrative is not necessarily didactic, meaning telling a story isn't necessarily telling you this is how you must do it, right? This is an example of what happened, not a prescription for what you must do. But even in this, I think there is something to be learned about Ruth and Naomi and the spiritual or the risk that they take physically, and I think that shows us what kind of risk we ought to take spiritually. I, I'm spiritualizing a little bit, but I, but I think there's something here in the risk that Ruth and Naomi take, because I'm working with the understanding that their intentions are righteous, and what they're seeking is redemption, and they're doing it according to the customs of the day and the laws of God, and they want good for their family. And to do that, they know they have to take risks. They have to put themselves out there. And I think there is a parallel there to how we have to take risks spiritually if we want redemption, if we want to be favored and blessed by God. There is a spiritual riskiness involved in that. 
even the coming to God. So there may be somebody here listening or somebody watching who is not a believer, not a Christian, and you know that to put yourself forward and to trust in the Lord and follow him and be a Christian and do the whole church thing, like that's a huge risk. And, and you might have a wall up because it feels scary. And in fact, to make yourself vulnerable before God, to place yourself at his feet and say, I trust you with my whole life, that is a big risk to take. That is a vulnerable thing. To trust that God will do well by you and with you and will treat you well and love you and care for you is a big risk. It's a risk to be involved in the church. To be involved with other people. That is what Christianity requires. The Christian faith requires being involved with one another and loving one another and serving one another. And to do that is to put yourself relationally at risk. It's to be vulnerable. At times, it might feel way more easy and comfortable just to be walled off, to be distanced, to be isolated, because being with church people can be scary sometimes. There can be hurt when you're open with other people when you serve and love other people, when you invite other people in and build that relationship, there's risk in that. I would contend with you that the joys and the benefits far outweigh the hurts, but the hurts are real. And they'll be there from time to time. So there is a risk involved in living this Christian life and following God. And there's risk here in Ruth to make yourself vulnerable, to trust that Naomi's plan is a good one and that Boaz will do well by her. But she's going to follow through. And so Naomi makes a plan and then Ruth makes a proposal. That's what happens in verses 6 through 9. Ruth makes a proposal. She's going to follow what Naomi proposes and I'll say even go beyond what Naomi said to do. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So just as... Naomi said, Boaz was widowing, he was done for the evening, he had eaten and drunk well, his heart was merry, he was happy, and he was sleeping by the grain, and this was done maybe because after the winnowing and the partying and the celebrating, you couldn't make it home, but probably more so because they were protecting what was theirs. So they were watching guards sleeping there, and that's what Boaz is doing. He's fat and happy. He's celebrated the Lord's provision. And then Ruth comes at the right time and lays next to him and uncovers his feet. And he wakes up. And I said at the first service, from what I understand, talking to older gentlemen, not terribly uncommon to wake up often in the middle of the night. But I believe he wakes up here because there's some cold air on his feet all of a sudden. The, the cover has been lifted and he's... Startled by that and turns over and what in the world? There is a young woman laying there and the text says, behold, 
What a shock, what a surprise. And I don't know about any of you, but I've never had this experience before. I've never been sleeping outside next to the grain I just winnowed and woken up, and all of a sudden there's a young lady just laying there by my feet. This would be a shock. What is Boaz going to do in this precarious situation? Well, first he has to figure out who it is, because it's dark out. And not just city dark, but country dark. And there's a difference. And he can't see who she is, so he asks, who's here? And her response, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Naomi told Ruth to go and do what he says. Ruth takes it a step further and says, I'll tell him what to do. She's very forward, a little maybe flirtatious. Says, spread your wings over your servant, which may have somewhat of a euphemistic connotation to it. More than anything, though, she's actually using covenantal language with him. She's using, in fact, the same language that Boaz used with her previously. One chapter ago, verse 12, chapter 2, Boaz said to her, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He prayed for her that she'd be taken care of by the Lord, and now she is saying to him, answer your own prayer. And it isn't clear that that's a marriage proposal. Consider the language of Ezekiel 16.8. Ezekiel 16 is a passage in Scripture about God and how he married his bride Israel, how he made a covenant with his bride, the nation of Israel. And Ezekiel 16.8 says... When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Do you hear what Ezekiel 16 said? I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. So that's covenantal language, spreading your wing or your garment over and covering them. That's marriage language. So that is what Ruth is doing. She's saying, marry me. Spread your wing over me. And it becomes very clear when she says, you are a redeemer. You're the one who can make me and Naomi right by redemption. Ruth is proactive here. She doesn't just wait for Boaz to do the right thing. She says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. And again, I don't think we have many opportunities to follow Ruth's example exactly, but I think we can take something from her in her proactivity. That is one of her character traits that we see through Ruth, and I think this is something that is applauded or lauded in the book of Ruth, that Ruth is a woman who takes action. She did it in chapter 1 when she said, no, I'm going with Naomi. I'm going back to Israel. She took action. She proactively sought covenant faithfulness to Naomi, to her God and to her people. So in chapter 2, when Ruth takes action, she goes out into the field and she gets to work and she starts gleaning. And now we see it here 
where she not only follows Naomi's advice, but says, I'll do you one further. I'm going to tell Boaz exactly what we want to be done. She's a proactive person. And I think there's something for us as Christians as we follow the Lord, and if we want to be blessed by him, if we want to uh, follow all of God's will, then it takes proactivity on our part. We have to take steps in order to do that. So last week we talked about that tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility and, and God's will and our will. And wherever we land on that, we have to recognize that we have to take part in this, that we have a part to play. We have to take action. And if God is going to bless us, if we're going to receive all the things that God wants for us in his sovereignty, that requires action on our part. I'm not saying that as Christians we we make our own luck. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying we have to be active in following him. We have to take steps. We can't sit there alone at home, lying down, wondering why the Lord isn't blessing us as we do nothing. So it may be that you're wondering why God isn't doing what he's doing or doing what you expect. And it might be that you just need to start by asking yourself, what have you done to seek the Lord in his will? What's your prayer life been like? Are you praying? Are you opening up scripture, seeking what he actually says? Are you involved with the people of God? Are you serving and ministering? Are you active in pursuing the Lord in his will? I won't promise you you get everything that you want. It's not how God works, which is a good thing. But in order to seek the Lord, we actually have to seek him. And that's what Ruth does here. She goes out and she seeks the Lord's redemption. She takes a step, and a big one. How will it be met? We find out in verses 10 through 15. Naomi made a plan, Ruth made a proposal, now Boaz makes a promise. Boaz makes a promise in response to Ruth's proposal. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, that there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. So here's Boaz. A woman has thrown herself at him very intentionally and made a proposal. How is he going to respond? And he responds well with prayer. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He prays over her a prayer of blessing. Why? Because he says, this last kindness is greater than the first. He's saying, this kindness is is way more kind, even greater than the the one before. So we'll ask, what is the first kindness that he's referencing? In the previous chapter, we know why Boaz was impressed with Ruth. Remember why? He said, you have a great reputation because you cared for your mother-in-law, Naomi. You were faithful to her, 
and you stayed with her coming to Israel. So Boaz is referring to that kindness, and that's a wonderful kindness, and this last kindness, even better than before. This is greater than the first. Why? Why is that? What's he talking about? Well, he explains. Basically saying, you could have married anybody. Naomi in chapter 1 wasn't so confident. She's saying, you better go back to Moab to find a husband. Boaz has more confidence in Ruth. Likely she's very attractive. She's younger than he is. And he says, you could have married anybody, whether poor or rich. In other words, you could have married for love or money. You could have married a poor guy because you love him. You could have married a rich guy because that would be security for you. But you haven't done either of those things. You are proposing to marry for the sake of your mother-in-law. You are proposing to marry a redeemer, somebody who can secure not only your future, but Naomi's as well. That's why you've chosen me. That's why you're proposing to me. He understands that. You want to marry somebody who will redeem your whole family, and you're thinking about covenant faithfulness. This proposal is a kindness to Naomi, and Boaz recognizes this. He says, you are a wonderful woman. He says, you're a worthy woman. Same word that was used of Boaz in chapter 2. They are both worthy. You might not know this, or you may, but our English Bibles are ordered differently than the Hebrew Bibles of the past. The, the books are in different order, according to a different system. And, and in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is in a different place. Where is it in the English Bible? Ruth comes right after Judges. Why? Because Ruth opens up in the time of the Judges. So it was at the same time, same historical setting, makes sense. Like perfectly logical place to put Ruth right after Judges. The Hebrew order is different, and the Hebrew Bible places Ruth in the wisdom writings, right after Proverbs. Why? How does Proverbs 31 end? With the Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent wife. And then the Hebrew Bible places Ruth right after that. So you read about the Proverbs 31 woman, and then you say, well, there she is, right there in Ruth. Boaz is saying the same thing. You are a worthy woman, an excellent woman. And they are a match together. They're both worthy people. So why shouldn't they be married? Well, like any good romantic drama or comedy or movie romance, there's always an obstacle. And something gets in the way before you get to happily ever after. And here, the obstacles, there is a redeemer closer than Boaz. Apparently, it kind of works like presidential succession, like there's an order and a line to it. And Boaz isn't next in line. There is, in fact, one who is closer. So Boaz says, we have to do the right thing and give him the opportunity, the first right of refusal, first. And then he makes a promise. If he doesn't do it, I will. There's the promise. If he doesn't redeem you, I will. Boaz's word is more trustworthy than politicians. He means it. He's going to make good on it. And because Boaz has made this promise, I will redeem you, Ruth can sleep. One way or another, she and Naomi are taken care of, either through this other nameless redeemer that we'll meet in chapter 4, or through Boaz, either way she's taken care of. She's secured, she'll be taken care of, 
And now Boaz shows she'll be taken care of by protecting her. So he has her sleep until morning. She wouldn't want to go right now in the middle of the night. That would be dangerous. So he says, sleep until morning, and then go before anybody sees you. Go secretly. That was to protect her reputation, because the threshing floor had a reputation. So she did that walk early in the morning with a bunch of other people visible. They might think, oh, something negative about Ruth's reputation. might even ruin her chances with the other redeemer. So protecting her, she leaves before anybody knows. But he doesn't send her away empty-handed. He loads her up with food. He has her hold out her cloak, and he gives her six measures of barley. And there's some debate as to how much that is, but best guesses are somewhere between 60 and 100 pounds. Not totally uncommon for women in that day and age, that culture, to carry that much water, food, whatever. But she is sent home with quite a gift. And what it is, is really, it's a a token. It's a promise to Naomi as she goes home. Your girl's taken care of, you're taken care of. It's almost a bride price in some ways. It's a gesture, a practical expression that Boaz is saying, I'm ready to be the redeemer, the guardian and protector. I will take care of you. And here's proof. But consider the righteousness, the goodness, the generousness, generosity of Boaz here. He had every opportunity to act selfishly and did not. He had a woman in a vulnerable position and he acted righteously and with integrity, not only toward her, but also to another man who wasn't even in the picture. Boaz could have taken advantage of the situation, but he acted with righteous integrity, not doing uh, just what he could with the opportunity before him, but acting according to the righteous standard and will, law, and custom of God. There's uh, a mother was correcting her three-and-a-half-year-old son who had gone into her closet and eaten a bunch of candy that was packaged there. And as she was correcting him, the boy said, well, why shouldn't I take it? You put it within my reach. Your fault, Mom. We understand that that's not righteous reasoning, right? Eve could have used that reasoning. Adam, you put the tree there. What was I supposed to do? Boaz could have acted like that. Well, you put the woman there. I mean, I couldn't help myself. But opportunity is not righteousness, right? We know that as Christians. We should know that. Just because the opportunity is there by some providence, the the opportunity is there to do something, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just because it's comfortable and easy and available to you doesn't mean it's righteous or God's will. Just because there was a ship there that happened to be going to Tarshish doesn't mean Jonah was supposed to get on. Right? You know the story. Just because the opportunity is there doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We, our actions, our righteousness, our ethics are not dictated by opportunity or ease of circumstance, but what does God say we should do and what is his will for us? And in Boaz, we have a righteous example, a godly example of somebody who acts with integrity and does what is right. And I would say in Boaz, we have somebody who is godly. 
And in fact, he is a picture of God himself and how he acts with his people. So here's where we get to the theological lesson of this whole story, this whole love story. Well, like, what does this have to do with us? Well, this teaches us how God is with his people and how his church ought to pursue God. You say, well, how am I justified? What justification do I have in looking at a marriage story and saying, well, that's about God and his people? Well, as it turns out, Ephesians 5 tells us that's exactly what we're supposed to do, that all marriages, however imperfect, should be and are a representation of how God loves his people, how Jesus cares for his bride. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's saying that union of man and woman is a reference to Christ and his church. And the way the woman pursues the man and loves the man, the way that the man cares for and protects and provides for the woman, of those, that melding, that union, is a picture of Christ and his church. So when we look at the righteousness of Boaz here, we will look at his integrity and his faithfulness and the way he promises redemption for Ruth, we should look at that and be able to say that is how God promises redemption for his people who come to him. The same way Boaz promises to be a redeemer for Ruth, Jesus promises to be a redeemer for his people. That is the big theological truth here. Redemption is promised to those who earnestly seek it. Through the story of Ruth and Boaz and Ruth 3, redemption is promised to those who earnestly seek it. For all those who come to the Lord, redemption is a guarantee. It is a promise that is more ironclad than Boaz's promise here. You can trust the Lord to redeem and to save if you go to him. I want to read a few passages of scripture that highlight that promise. I want us to be sure of that promise. So listen to what scripture says about the promise of redemption we have as we seek the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 13, what God promises Israel. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6:40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 16.31, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, as I read those, let me ask you, is there anything ambiguous about that? Is there anything hesitant? Uh, is there any asterisk in that? Or is that a repeated, surefire, ironclad promise that anybody who comes to the Lord will find salvation in him? No matter what you've done, where you've been, who you are, Moabite or Israelite, 
anyone who comes to the Lord will be met with acceptance, with forgiveness, with, with redemption, no matter who you are. So you can trust that Jesus will be a faithful redeemer. I need you to know this. If you're not a believer and you're not sure if God will accept you, here's the promise. Anybody who comes to me will be saved. If you're worried that God might reject you, if you're worried uh, that what you've done is far greater and far more sinful than God could ever handle, here's the promise. I will save you if you come to me. If you're worried about being vulnerable and opening yourself up, and will God be good to you? Here's the promise. I will save you. If you struggle with assurance... If you're a Christian, but you still, time to time, you have doubts about whether, where you're at with God and whether or not he could save you, read these promises. I will save all who come to me. Is a promise repeated over and over again that Jesus is a faithful redeemer and all who come to him, all who pursue him in the same way Ruth pursued Boaz, all who come will find redemption in him. And so we close with, and we look at these last few verses here, what we find is that we can trust in those promises because Naomi trusted in Boaz. In the same way Naomi trusts in Boaz, so we can trust in the Lord. We conclude with an example, with a call to trust in the promise of redemption. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth returns home. Naomi, like a friend after a first date, wants all the details. How to go? You were gone all night, a little worried. How are you doing? She asks, how did you fare? But actually, the exact way it's worded, Hebrew is, who are you, my daughter? It's a much more penetrating question. It's a question of identity. Has something fundamental about who you are shifted? Really, what Naomi is asking is, are you betrothed? How'd it go? Ruth gives the full report of all this happening, <laughs> unloads the food once again. Naomi at one point had complained that the Lord had left them empty. And that is no longer the case. It's a promise to Naomi. And Naomi knows she can trust Boaz to take care of them, so that's what she says. She says, Ruth, wait. Your part is done. You've done what you're supposed to do. Now, wait. That's a beautiful word. Rest and trust. You've sought redemption. It's now promised to you. And you can rest in that promise. You don't have to work. He'll do the work. He's a good redeemer. And he will settle the matter immediately. It's the counsel Naomi gives to Ruth. I think it's the counsel the Spirit gives to the people of God. You have found redemption. And now you can rest and trust in that. That your Redeemer will be good and faithful and will accomplish that redemption. 
And don't worry your head. It's taken care of. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for the promise of redemption. We thank you that the promise is grounded in your word and grounded in your character and your faithfulness, which far exceeds even that of Boaz. And Lord, we come to you as desperate as Ruth. We thank you that you are faithful. Lord, there are many reasons or opportunities we may have to be anxious, to worry, to fret, to be unsure about our future, our health, our relationships, our work, whatever it may be. We know many of those things are not necessarily promised to us. But we thank you that we have a far, far greater and more secure promise of redemption in you, that all who come will find eternal life and salvation in you. It will be far superior to anything we experience on this earth. So we rest in that. We trust in that, Lord. Help us to continue to trust in the redemption promised through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.